<laughs> this isn't even gonna make the episode, but it's on brand because it's so self-indulgent. And the people, the haters, said that we couldn't get more self-indulgent. The ho- yeah, they did the haters, say that. The haters said that the Holy <laughs> Land boys could never get more self-indulgent, and they were wrong, Patrick. They were absolutely yeah. wrong, and. We're here on the Hangout in the Holy Land podcast to self-indulge and continue our streak, our list of the 20 most rewatchable Ohio State games of all time. We did 20 and 19 on last episode, so of course this means that today's is 18 and 17. It hasn't been out long enough to really generate a huge response, or I haven't seen like a massive feedback, but from the things I have seen, People seem to like it, and I think that this is probably our best uh, thing we've created yet. Yeah, it's uh, I, I've gotten some some good feedback. I've also gotten some feedback people asking where to find the show, which has been um, trust me, that's an issue for for us to trying to uh, we uh, we've migrated to a new host. It's it's kind of a um, more of an SB Nation decision than an us decision, but uh, we we've migrated to a new host, and it's kind of changed the the way that we have to do things a little bit and we're still adjusting to and um I, I have seen a lot of that feedback so if people don't know and you uh you are listening to this maybe on the actual megaphone site which i know is not necessarily ideal for some people uh the podcast is available as far as i know on apple podcasts i know it's on spotify and I think Stitcher. Um, so if you if you have any of those, you can listen to it there as well. And I think that there is an RSS feed available as well. Yeah, when you said that the other night that we're on Spotify, that was literally my first time. I didn't that. know either. So yeah, go. <laughs> yeah, I had to check. That's a game changer. Go on to Spotify. If you search Land Grant Holy Land, that is a dash between Land and Grant. You will find the show there. That is a complete game changer. And if you have any questions on where to find us, send us a tweet at Holy Land Pod. I'm going to mute this part out. Boy, it sucks. It's but bad. It is yeah. super bad. But yeah, find us on Spotify. Find us on Apple Podcasts. Keep up with our list of the 20 most rewatchable Ohio State games of all time that we are going to be continuing today. Is there anything else you want to talk about from the last episode? I feel like... Those two games were a great place to start, and they were super symmetrical because they were both Trestle Era games, uh, both, I think, under the radar a little bit, and they had a lot more storyline behind them than just the actual game itself. And it feels like today's episode is a little bit more of the same, that when you really take a deep dive into both of these games that we're going to talk about, that they kind of mirror each other in weird ways and they're both next to each other and we we didn't pre-plan this or anything but it's interesting that both of these games are next to each other because i think there's a lot of similarities yeah i i think that the um one of the games we're going to talk about today is actually probably the most sentimental pick on the list i know that we said in the first episode that this would be much more of a what are the the best games to watch and i think one of the games we're going to talk about today maybe isn't a great game to watch but is on this this list because of how special the the actual occasion was how important the the game was um and then the other one the one that we're going to start with 1996 rose bowl against arizona state 
was just a banger. <laughs> I, I think that, you know, we talked last week about the NC State game being loaded with talent, and I think that the Arizona State game is um, similarly just packed to the brim with really, really awesome players. Um, maybe not so much on both sides, although Jake Plummer, underrated, very good quarterback. Um, that Arizona State offense, very underrated. And then I, I think, you know, Ohio State side, obviously, um, I don't know if this is a hot take or not. I think John Cooper's teams, like the really good ones, were probably the most like purely talented in Ohio State history. The, I, I think it goes a little bit forgotten, but he recruited better than just about anybody. He was an extremely, extremely good recruiter. And um, this was another one of his teams that was just packed with talent. I mean, two quarterbacks who I would consider to be pretty good that played in this game. Um you got Pepe Pearson, you got guys like David Boston, Demetrius Stanley, and then Orlando Pace, who is just an absolute delight to watch play football. Um, I, I spent most of my time when I was rewatching this just watching Orlando. I know you uh, you have some thoughts on him as well, but this is this this first one, uh, number eighteen on our list, nineteen ninety six Arizona State, is another one where the the final score doesn't necessarily reflect how good this game actually was. Um, and it doesn't really reflect the amount of talent that, that was in this game. I don't think I disagree with you on that point about John Cooper because strictly from like, look at what these guys were at Ohio State and then look at what they were in the NFL. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the Urban Meyer era, I still think we're going to see the fruits of that over the next three or four years, and we've seen a lot of guys get drafted high, win Rookie of the Year awards, and I think a lot of those guys are going to be super talented players, but... When you start listing names like Eddie George, Joey Galloway, Terry Glenn, Orlando Pace, uh, Dan Wilkinson, Sean Springs, Antoine Winfield, and a host of purely just high-end talent-wise, you can make a case for John Cooper, which makes it all the more baffling that there wasn't as much overall success. And that's only in viewed in the lens of, I think, an Ohio State fan, because there are tens and tens of fan bases around the country that would kill for the type of run that John Cooper had Ohio State going at in the 1990s. But the craziest thing to me when looking at this game and looking at the numbers that, did you know, Patrick, this is actually um, one of only four wins in John Cooper's career at Ohio State. He had the uh, he had the two against Michigan, this Rose Bowl, and then uh, maybe like one other good bowl game. But other than that, no other wins in John no. Cooper's career. Nope. <laughs> None. That's it. <laughs> These are the only ones. Um, I, I do think there's... Uh, it's kind of fun to imagine what our podcast would have been like during the John Cooper era. I thought because, about that. Yeah, because I think if people uh, thought we got mad about coaching during the Urban Meyer era, um, <laughs> John Cooper kind of took it to a whole new level of just not coaching. Just... <laughs> absolutely refused to coach <laughs> refused to uh really change much of anything i think he was more willing to play um talented players above bad ones but just uh even in just this one game rewatching it it, it was a little bit frustrating <laughs> at times seeing how you know he has this this insane suite of talent he has all of these awesome receivers all of these great running backs, these really good quarterbacks. I think Joe Germain and Stanley Jackson were both legitimately very good quarterbacks for different reasons, obviously. Um, he has all this 
all this talent and the the offense is just not good it's just stale um and this was kind of when i wrote my uh, my big oral history of the 1995 season this time last year that was kind of a, a big key then too was that uh, like these teams had all the talent in the world and John Cooper, who was a really good recruiter, um, and when he had good assistant coaches, teams got better. I, I think even more so than Urban Meyer, he just refused to coach for <laughs> a, quite a quite a long time at Ohio State. Yeah, I, I'm looking at the the records right now and seeing a couple other players that popped up: Robert Smith, Ricky Dudley, Mike Vrabel, who's in this game, Corey Andy Stringer, RIP, was in this Andy, game. Yes, Andy Katzenmore, uh, Ahmed Plummer. Niall Diggs, Nate Clement, Ryan Pickett. I mean, it, it really is just a who's who of guys that not yeah. only were good at Ohio State, but went into the league and in some cases were Hall of Fame level talents. And if they weren't Hall of Fame level, they were guys like Joey Galloway, Eddie George, Terry Glenn, Robert Smith, who are Hall of very, very good. And it's just amazing, and I, I think it was during the broadcast of this game where already at that point, he was 1-6 in, in bowl games, and so it wasn't just the can't-beat-Michigan thing. It was that, too, and you know they, they had come off of losing that game to Michigan 13-9 to at home. We don't need to open up old wounds for everybody talking about that game, but they came into this game 10-1, and and it had to have been a little bit of a disappointment for them to not be in this game playing for a national championship. And it really stands out because it was a great matchup. Arizona State, people forget, they were undefeated in this game. And if they would have won, they would have been national champions. So this was a sweet way for them to end the season. But I feel like for not only this year, but for even other successful years of the Cooper era and really his whole tenure, it's just always going to have that tinge to it of losing at the wrong time, losing to Michigan, and then whether it was, you know, matching up against other top level teams, say like the bowl game against Florida State where they got destroyed. They just had moments where, you know, everything did not look right when they matched up with somebody else who was really good. I think I have a uh, a hypothetical that can kind of tie into um, now times. So just speaking more broadly of John Cooper, John Cooper started off his tenure. So his tenure at Ohio State lasted 13 years. Uh, he started off at Ohio State first five years, uh, four, six, and one, eight, and four, seven, four, and one, eight, and four, eight, three, and one. Um, so the hypothetical is, at what point during that five-year stretch does Ryan Day get fired if he does that exact same thing? Year two. I think it's after year two. Yeah, I think it's year two. <laughs> I think four, four, and it would be four and eight or five and seven now if it was comparable. Um, five and seven in year one, eight and four in year two. I think Ryan Day gets fired after two years. Relating it back to the Trestle era. I can only speak for myself here, and I, I know fans feel a little bit differently, but I, I don't care about the losses to Florida in the championship game and LSU and Texas in the Fiesta Bowl because they beat Michigan those years, yeah. and they beat who they were supposed to. Now, I, I think I may be in the minority that I'm more mad about the LSU game than the Florida game because Todd they Beckman won the LSU innocent. game. <laughs> Todd Beckman, innocent. Uh, who was it? Austin Spittler. Whoever roughed the punter. Guilty. Very guilty. But 
you know, we don't look back at 2006 as being a completely failed year because they beat Michigan in a game that was huge and we'll talk about later on in this list. And that kind of prevented Tressel from having that tinge because he always beat them. And with Cooper, that's just not there because even in this game, yeah, they win and they win late and in very dramatic fashion. But if you're old enough to remember, you think, what could have been? How did we only score nine points against Michigan? And you tie that into what happened in 1993, what happened in 96, and even the next year in Michigan in 1997, giving them one of their famous, one of really the biggest moment in Michigan's program history in like the last 30 years. (laughs) And really since then, and it all kind of just ties together. I think that John Cooper's judged unfairly at the end of the day sometimes, but it's also like if you go whatever, 3-10-1 against Michigan and win three bowl games, you kind of deserve it. Yeah, I, I think that you know another layer, and you mentioned it, to add on to that kind of hypothetical is that if Ryan Day, he won't have a start like that. I think Ryan Day will be perfectly fine. But if he is to, to fall into a kind of Cooper-esque rut where Ohio State's winning nine or ten games every year and can't seem to get over the hump even with having a bunch of talent, I think if he does that but – does so with the two losses being to like um really anybody but michigan you know you you don't lose to bad out of conference teams don't lose to purdue and iowa by 30 um i i think that if he goes 10 and 2 9 and 3 but beats michigan and has relative success in in big games i i do think that that's something that ohio state kind of not values more than pure winning numbers but winning against Michigan at Ohio State is such a crucial part of the formula for coaching success. And um, I think that, you know, if I say that John Cooper wasn't a very good in-game coach, which he certainly wasn't, I do think that his struggles against Michigan kind of paint him unfairly as this, like, completely incompetent coach who was like the worst coach in school history, which he wasn't, (laughs) Earl Bruce was. Uh, I will not discuss this later. Um, But... I think that it paints him in a light that isn't necessarily fair to him. And I think that this this game specifically kind of shows that, you know, even the uh, the final the final numbers, be it win records or the final score of this game, aren't necessarily reflective of how good this team was. Um, and I, I think that, you know, it, it was really like the the whole point of this series is what games are the most fun to watch and this game was a really really fun game to go back and watch um i, I think even with a, a relatively low score so i like it stood out to me right away that ohio state could pass like pretty well probably better than they could in the uh the second game we're going to talk about today and um I, I think one of the things that really popped out to me the most was that uh Demetrius stanley and david boston are just super fun to watch even now 20 plus years later like they they still look like uh you know pretty much modern receivers in their their style i think that they were a bit ahead of their time in the way that they played this was really if i'm not mistaken the coming out party for david boston he catches two touchdowns in this game including the final one that puts ohio state ahead with about a minute to go and Stanley, he has the long touchdown, and he just looks like one of those guys that we saw a lot last year for Ohio State, a, a guy like Johnny Dixon or Terry McLaurin, who just seems to always be at the right place at the right time, somebody like K.J. Hill. 
and Stanley had big moments against Notre Dame, had big moments in this game, and he was somebody that they could really count on. And then you have an emerging young guy like David Boston, who even by then, you could kind of tell like, okay, this guy's turning into something special. I don't know if anybody anticipated that he would be what he eventually ended up becoming, but you can just tell the raw talent, that first touchdown where he drags his foot in the back of the end zone, that's stuff that young guys, especially back then, didn't do quite often. And you see that talent on display and then you can kind of realize like, wow, this guy was really on the upswing. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, two two really technically sound receivers, two guys, like I said, really fun to watch. Um, David Boston, probably one of the like one of the most upsetting pro careers of any of any former Buckeye. Um, I obviously I wasn't like watching football super closely when he was was playing or entering the NFL, but uh, I, I think just you know his skill set, it, it's like the DK Metcalf thing, and I, I think it became a little bit. <laughs> he took it a little bit too far with the uh, the wanting to be uh, in the best possible shape and to to kind of intimidate people <laughs> before he ever gets on the field. But man, David Boston, you know, four catches, twenty yards, which isn't great, but he did have the two touchdowns, including the the game winning touchdown, like you mentioned, and he was just a freak, just an absolute athletic freak almost impossible to guard um when he was like running an actual route which he didn't get to do a ton in this offense and i I think he's really one of the one of the better like what ifs of ohio state draft picks in the last 20 years if he if he hadn't ballooned up to where he did um using whatever methods he may or may not have used that i won't mention on this podcast um i was gonna say it seems like you're dancing yeah. around saying david boston took steroids well, <laughs> which, ah, i mean it seems I, the evidence would point to yes i'm looking at his uh football reference page 2001 and when he was 23 years old 98 he catches was awesome early 50, it was after 1598 yeah. yards eight touchdowns he had some enormous potential but then his like his chin turned into a triangle <laughs> and you could just tell who like that, you are not natural. who was it that he signed with was it was it the chargers and then he just immediately fell apart yeah, yeah chargers he only played 14 games and he yeah. was done <laughs> kind of a bummer so yeah <laughs> we, we don't have to talk about david boston's pro career um because yeah this was this was his coming out party this was his freshman season he had 33 catches for 450 yards, seven touchdowns on the season. So that he was like one of the poster child guys of like, this guy's been playing well in bowl practice. And then he goes out and does it. And then the next year has almost a thousand yards and 14 touchdowns. And then that final year really cements himself as one of the best receivers in Ohio state history. Um, Should I give away a spoiler for this game about our list? Because I feel like it'd be better to tell people now than to make them wait that, this is yeah, the oldest yeah. game on our list. So if if you are from the three yards in a cloud of dust era, we are very sorry. Um, I'm not I, sorry. Some of, those, <laughs> some of those games are on YouTube. You can also break out your VCR if you want to watch them. But uh, yeah, nothing from the 70s or 80s on our list. Nothing from 1968. The purpose of this is rewatchable. And I know that a lot of people still love that era. A lot of those people are on social security. So we don't want to discount your guys' opinion, but this is the oldest game on this list. And I really love watching the broadcast and to see like just how different 
things were in the 90s because right in this era this was like the height of the big ass shoulder pads era and <laughs> I, great. I know it's never going to come back but the big ass shoulder pads always look good with Ohio State and when the numbers were on the top of the shoulder pads it, it just looks right it looks right seeing Mike Vrabel wearing shoulder pads that in circumference are like twice the size of his head. <laughs> it really, it's like, it's an extremely distinctly 90s thing. And to, to see someone like Andy Katzenmoyer, who's got these massive numbers on his massive shoulder pads, and it's it's almost like, it's almost comical to look back on now. And um, I, I think I was like almost a little bit surprised. I, I don't know why I was so surprised because I've spent a lot of time watching older football games, but it really stood out to me in this game uh, just like how insanely different college football is now than it was in 1997. Um, Because like this really, I I don't want to say it looked like a different sport, but it was pretty close to a different sport just in the way that it was played. I mean, Ohio State was, I think, on not necessarily the cutting edge, but on the more progressive side towards how they viewed passing the ball down the field. And uh, Arizona State was certainly more willing to pass the ball than most teams. But this game still operated, I think, exclusively under center. I don't remember any any shotgun snaps. Um, a lot of eye form, a, a lot of like... Sprint outs. Yeah, a lot of like eight guys in the box on defense and... Um, I was thinking, like, while watching it, uh, because there was, I think in the second half, there was an Andy Katzmoyer interception. And I was thinking, while watching him run, like, man, we would fry this guy relentlessly on every single podcast if he was playing now, because linebackers were just slow then. Like, Andy Katzmoyer, by all accounts, an excellent linebacker at the time. He was a very, very good linebacker, great hitter, um, I, I think an extremely talented player. But, I mean, every single linebacker in this game was just slow. And that's just the way that it was. You you didn't want, you know, these these little fast guys playing linebacker. The, the game was really all about, it was still three yards in a cloud of dust even then. And it was just, it's a, it's a completely different, watching experience even for teams that could pass the ball because everything is so uh focused on the line of scrimmage and i I don't know if it if it's more or less enjoyable i think i I certainly maybe prefer the more open version of football just because you know I'm, i'm i'm an offense first guy i like to see a bunch of points i like to see offenses spreading it around but uh, it, it's certainly, it, it's just, it's really bizarre. <laughs> it's bizarre to see that this wasn't, I mean, it was, it was a long time ago, but it wasn't that long relative to like the time that the sport has existed. And it's just so wildly different now than it was then. I will say this about Katz and Moyer, what he probably didn't have for like top end long range speed, his burst was insane. Yeah. There are a couple of hits and couple of plays that he knifes through where his short area quick quickness was just legit and i know that the one play everybody talks about is him lighting up colby jones from a zoo and that's really what type of player he was is just just that that short area quickness and when you look at that whole defense we talked about there being talent in the john cooper era this defense alone man there were some serious dudes you had luke fickle mike vrabel cats and moyer sean springs Antoine Winfield, just guys who, 
like I said before, we're not only great at Ohio State, but went on for basically everybody but Fickle and Katzenmoyer, went on to be, at the very least, very, very good NFL players in to see the type of talent they had on defense. It's not a surprise that they only lost one game this season. Have we discussed Sean Springs on this podcast before? No, and I don't think people talk about him enough in God, general. God, he was good. He was super good. And Antoine <laughs> Winfield, so too. Good. They were both so good. Because Antoine Winfield, I want to say, had a 15-year career. He played till he was like 34 or 35. Right. Yeah. And he was super productive. Those two guys, even to this day, I think that corner play probably translates more when you talk about different guys through eras maybe they aren't as fast as the guys that play now but technically and what they were able to do with their positioning and just how smart they were even as college players you can just tell that oh these are guys that could be able to play today with just how they think about the game of football from a cornerback or defensive back standpoint they're two of the best yeah, I mean, just I, I like Sean Springs was the one who really stood out to me in this game. Although Winfield was was really good too, but Sean Springs, um, he's listed on this uh, <laughs> this, this like uh, written handwritten down box score that I'm looking at from Ohio State's archives. Um, he's listed as having four pass deflections. I feel like it was even more than that. Watching the game back, um, but he really was locked down. Like he was he was the guy that. Uh, and I think lockdown cornerbacks were a little bit more common during this time, uh, just because, like I said, defenses would put eight guys up on the line, and a lockdown cornerback would really have to be on his own. And um, Sean Springs was as good as they came, I think, at Ohio State and really in college football at this time. He was just just excellent at playing corner. And Arizona State really struggled with him all game long. You know how we talked about Ryan Mallett and guys like him getting NFL dudes in trouble because like you just see him and you think he's an NFL quarterback. Yeah. Guys like Sean Springs are the type of players that still get GMs in trouble because when you just look at Sean Springs, I you can just watch him play for a second. You're like, okay, I take that guy in the first round. He just looks yeah. like he's already <laughs> ready to play in the NFL. And in his case, he was a very good NFL player almost right away. Um, but really, we got to get to what what really the purpose of watching this whole game was about. And if you're going to watch this one, really what you should be watching for. And that's one man. That's yeah. Orlando Pace <laughs> playing left tackle. Because he it's, it's, it looks unfair. It looks like they shouldn't be allowing him to play against defenders. There's a, a play that I gift, and I'm going to put it in the post to this, where Ohio State runs the ball to his side. It's like a pitch. And he really, he really doesn't go with the kind of just stays at home. And there's an ASU linebacker that comes on a delayed run blitz. And he just puts this guy straight in the dirt and just stands over him. And when you look at him the whole game, there, I don't even think there's a play where, like, not even he gets beat, just where a guy has a chance. I mean, he's just locks <laughs> dudes up no matter what. And there are some times where... Arizona State won't even put anybody on him. They're just like, no, we're not even going to waste our time. We're going to try to do something else. And I, I don't think it can be understated what his place is in Ohio State history. because He's, he's got to be one of the top three best players ever because he just absolutely dominated his opponents. Yeah, I uh, I, I think um, I think that Orlando Pace, his athleticism, his dominance is it's almost LeBron-esque in that like when he is really 
in a groove and he was in a groove in this game there's just you can't touch him you know it, it, and you like you mentioned it Arizona State eventually they they just they just stopped trying like they <laughs> they realized that if they put two def- that they they put two linemen on him they tried to blitz on his edge they tried to put a defensive tackle out there whatever it was it just it wasn't going to matter and it was a waste of a guy um so they just they would just leave him and this was this was not like this is not the only time that this happened uh this season or when he was at Ohio State because he was just so physically imposing and yeah, I mean, he was, firstly, he was massive. I mean, he was, I think, bigger than almost any offensive lineman at the time. This was really right at, the, like, the start of um, college football players and athletes in general lifting. This was this was kind of right after Nebraska realized that your players could be strong. Um, and Orlando Pace, I, I think, was... Uh, there, it's like it's like the same thing that Reggie White had, where just very, very naturally strong, in a way where it, it isn't necessarily just aesthetic. It's in the way that this guy could flip my car over if he wanted to, and uh, I mean, like I, I don't like you said, I don't remember a play where he was even really challenged in this game, and I, I think he is probably the only offensive lineman I can think of. Where, like, if I saw a highlight video for for Orlando Pace for an offensive lineman, I would watch it. I, I don't know if that's true of any other offensive lineman, but he was like, just he was just that dominant. He was so good against you know even the best competition that he went up against. And I, I don't think that this game was necessarily that, but really, I, I don't think Orlando Pace ever disappointed. I, I think you could watch any Orlando Pace college game and come away like pretty satisfied with the way that you spent your time you know how good you have to be to be an offensive lineman and finish fourth in the heisman (laughs) even back then where i feel like defensive linemen offensive linemen got a little more pub than even they do now to finish fourth in the heisman is just absolutely absurd and he was probably the best player in the country oh absolutely yeah He, he was and because he stepped into the nfl right away and he was the best left tackle and he might be the best left tackle slash offensive lineman in general of all time. He, he has that case and just watching him as a treat. So if you're going to go back and watch this game, whether it's the no huddle version or the full version, just watch Orlando pace. You won't be disappointed. Uh, you know what else I wasn't disappointed in was the gray end zone for Ohio yeah. state that I know they've only played in the Rose bowl twice since then, but next time they go back, I want a gray end zone because it looks spectacular. Man, the Rose Bowl is I, I don't know if we I don't know if we've talked about this before or if we did. I think we did probably before the Washington game. The Rose Bowl is such a pretty place to watch a football game. No, there's it's the just, best. Yeah, there's just like the the way that they uh the like the sideline paint that they do. Um just everything about it is so so good and um this this game has kind of a special treat to it in that the weather was dreadful <laughs> like I, I think near the end of the game i don't know i couldn't quite tell if it was raining but the the field got super muddy it got like all kinds of mess and at the end of the game it was just a mess but it was still at this beautiful football mecca and uh you you know you've got like all of the the history of the Rose Bowl, you've got all of the like this just fantastic place to watch a football game, and then you've got like just this horrendous weather, and <laughs> it's it's really a treat to watch 
um, specifically to watch Orlando Pace in that environment because it's like I, I think it's as college football as it gets to watch an extreme dominant offensive lineman on like a sloppy Rose Bowl field. That is that is like the most college football thing that I can imagine. <laughs> also, something that stood out to me: the first Arizona State touchdown, which by today's standards, Was that the diving edge? definitely not. Yeah. Yes. For, Football without replay. There, there are people that want to bring that back, and I know we all have our opinions. But if the, if you want football without replay, like that, to me, just seems like the most idiotic thing in the world. And the other thing that stood out to me was when you really think about it, there was a long period of time where the top two teams didn't play for the national championship or the perceived top two teams, or there was just ways that they would make it not happen. The fact that Arizona State had to play Ohio State in this game solely because of the bowl tie-ins, I don't know if it's unfair. I don't know if that's the right word, but I just remember, because I was young around this time. I was seven years old during this game. But even you know in 2003 or 2004, the fact that the best two teams weren't playing on a regular basis sometimes is just baffling to me and looking back on it the bull tie-ins and how long they lasted i i just can't fathom i wonder if in like 20 some years we'll look back and wonder how there was ever not like an eight team playoff or even like a four team playoff if there aren't any changes because you know it, it is like it's absurd to look back and look at the 90s look at the 80s even before like there were a bunch of major bowl games. You go back to the 60s where it was decided entirely by the AP poll. You know, they didn't make an effort to have the best two teams play. It was entirely tie-ins and there were like four bowl games and um, the ball could only be used for half of the game and then the other half you just had to like play without a ball. (laughs) You couldn't wear shoes and uh, the coaches weren't allowed to actually be at the stadium. They had to do it remotely from the stands. (laughs) It's just like... It's wild. It's wild to look back at this time where, like you said, Arizona State was awesome this year. They were undefeated. They they should have been probably playing. I, I don't know who the other great team in 1997, 1996 would have been off the top of my head. Um, maybe Florida State. I I don't remember for sure. Seems like a safe Florida gift. or Florida State. I think this might have been the Danny Werfel year. Um, so it yeah, was because he won the right, Heisman. Yeah. Um, but just like to look back not that long ago where the best two teams would very rarely play and like the the BCS seems like such an obvious thing for this sport and playoffs seems like such an obvious thing for this sport. So I really do wonder if down the road we'll we'll look back and think about how it's baffling that all five power five conference, you know, champions and the best mid major and then two at larges weren't playing for the championship every single year. Um, I, I think that'll be kind of a, a fun thing to think about in like 2035. I got to say, I think the BCS was okay. It was fine. Like all things, all yeah, things considered, it was, it was certainly better than what we had for this era. And I know that the, there were ways that the BCS just kind of got wonky near the end but I, I think the intention was good and I'm, I'm a big proponent of four and if it goes to eight I won't like it but at least I think it's better than what this was where it actively kept teams that were the best from playing each other something that is inarguably good for the sport it couldn't happen solely 
because of bowl tie-ins. But that's just, and that really isn't that long ago. We'll go back and look for it. Um, what what else stands out to you about this game? Because I, I think we've we've given this game a lot of shine. And when you look at the talent in it or the stakes, Arizona State was playing for the national championship. This was really their moment in the sun, and Ohio State ruined it for them. And I know we talked about David Boston. In terms of iconic plays, I think this touchdown, his last minute one, ranks up pretty high when it comes to historical Ohio State moments. Watching him cut back into the end zone and then that little like shrug, walk, gangster walk celebration he does <laughs> in the end zone, at least for me, that's always been a super iconic moment. Yeah, I uh, I did actually, I noticed on that throw, I hadn't thought about that play in a really long time. I don't think I've seen it in a really long time. Um, the throw from, I think it was Joe Germain that Ohio State kind of switched to at halftime. The throw from Joe Germain was bad. It was a bad throw. <laughs> Like it was, it was pretty wildly underthrown. There was almost no zip on it, and it didn't matter because David Boston was so wide open. Um, but that was that was a little bit surprising to me. I mean, it was it was a really phenomenal route. Uh, I I don't know, I don't know if I have a ton of other takeaways on the game as a whole, just because uh, a lot of it was punting. Like a, a good portion of this game was punting and field position there were a couple turnovers and um i I think both offenses were were pretty good but not not great um like we said you know if you're gonna watch this game you should probably do it for orlando pace above all else i think pepe pearson's pretty fun to go back and watch but um that that catch i was a little i was i don't say underwhelmed i had i had remembered it a little differently i think i had remembered it a little bit more spectacular i i may have been merging it with the uh the 2002 miami catch yeah and if i'm not mistaken this was the first rose bowl win for ohio state since 1974 so if you're looking for reasons to watch this game the talent and then number one orlando pace and the stakes keeping arizona state from winning a national championship and then you know winning winning a rose bowl and the dramatic finish and how the game comes down to it so i think with all those factors in, and honestly, us just having to fit one of these games from the 90s in, I think, what, 18 is a good spot. Yeah, I, I think 18 is probably the right place for this game. Um, we talked a little bit about, there were a couple other 90s games that could have uh, slipped in here, but I, I think this was probably the best of the bunch. Um, the John Cooper era didn't have a ton of massive wins like this one but this was i think certainly a worthwhile game to go back and look at uh for no reason other you know above all else just for orlando pace but still i I think it's a it's a fun watch um there's a there's a super short version on youtube that i saw uh that's like 10 minutes long and it gets most of the big plays in it i watched the full thing but the the 10 minute version is really good too um so if you're you know if you've got 10 free minutes you can you can still get your your daily serving of orlando pace and um I, i think it's i think it's worth checking out you know what game is not worth talking about patrick Which one is that? (laughs) The one we're about to talk about right now that's coming in on our list. At 17, I feel like if there's anything controversial, it's going to be this because don't you feel like people are going to be upset that this is too low? Um, Probably. People love this game. And I have to be clear, and I know I said it last episode, 
in really just shitting on this game, I don't mean it from the sense that it isn't important or it, like if, if we were doing a list of the most important Ohio State games or like biggest moments, this is in the top 10, don't you think? Yeah. Given, yeah, given think what it was for. Yeah. Most rewatchable. I already came into this game with a bad attitude and then I started watching it and I was like, <laughs> God, there is not but about four plays in this game that are rewatchable. So let's jump into it and talk about Ohio State's 14 to 9 win over Michigan in 2002, the win that propelled them to the Fiesta Bowl. So haters, come at me. Tell me why you think this game is good because it's boring and I'm never going to watch it again except for maybe a two-minute highlight video. <laughs> yeah, I, I think Ohio State-Michigan 2002 is is probably um, probably best enjoyed in a highlight video. <laughs> There's nothing <laughs> more on brand for us than hating our own game that, that we put on own. the list. Okay, I... I will I will explain why this is on the list. I had it at 14 on mine. Uh, we both made for to go a little bit inside baseball. We both made lists for this and then kind of combined the ones that we both had to make an aggregate to get uh, a pretty consensus top 10ish. Um, but as we got further down the list, we we picked a little bit off of both of our our final lists and um, this was one that I, I thought probably we should put on there um, just for for its significance and uh, not to keep people from yelling at us because people will yell at us regardless um, but to to kind of recognize the fact that this was a super important game this was a game that um, I, I don't think we have a ton of we might have the the one uh, that I think people can probably guess uh, other 2002 game and I, I would like to get a little bit of 2002 representation on our list because um, Maurice Claret was awesome I, I think if you're going to rewatch this game, that's the number one thing to to watch. And um, numbers, his numbers in this game weren't outstanding. They were still pretty good. Twenty attempts for 119 yards and a touchdown. Um, but I, I, you know, you kind of know what you're getting into watching a 2002 Ohio game. They were almost always close. They were almost always led by that awesome defense. Um, I think Will Allen had the yeah. game-winning interception. Is that right? Um, and it was really the defense the whole game that kept them in it. And, um, you know, if you're going to watch this game, you know that you're going to be watching a really, really dominant defense. And Michigan's defense was really awesome this year, too. And um, it, it's really, it's kind of a celebration of that defense and a celebration of Maurice Claret, who at this point in the season was pretty severely dinged up. And I think it, it shows up during most if not all of this game but god he was still good even even after taking an entire season's worth of beating would they have gotten shut out if he didn't play in this game because he yeah I mean, and that that's <laughs> yeah. not me being facetious or trying to be funny he makes five or six game-changing plays that they just had to have including that last catch down the sideline, which is, I think, another iconic moment that we don't talk enough about. With that wrap on his arm, that thing looked like it weighed maybe 15 pounds, and he was able to just play on that bum shoulder. He hadn't played in the Illinois game a week before, a game that I think is actually more rewatchable than this one. But <laughs> he was he was awesome all game. You're, you're totally right. And he was able to do enough for them despite being so banged up to put them in position 
all game and I just I couldn't stop laughing whenever he would do something and Brett Musburger would just go full Brett Musburger and be like the difference maker and all I could think of was just the difference maker has logged on and he really was he was the difference maker for that team and he took their performance to another level and that's something we talked about in the last episode with 2003 NC State where without him the running game just looked lost and guys like Maurice Hall, Lydell Ross, they were great backup options but Claret just took them to a different level, and you could also throw them the ball too. Yeah, I, I like, you know, I, I think I agree that if they don't have Claret, they get shut out in this game because Craig Grinzel, who's his numbers actually weren't whole in this game. He completed ten of his fourteen passes, which is better than he usually did, and he just there's there's something there was something really lacking in that offense because Craig Grinzel couldn't throw the ball more than twenty yards, um, and I don't know if that was. Like, well, it certainly wasn't by design. I think it was just just that he couldn't uh, hold the football correctly, which is kind of man. You're gonna have the buck nuts people coming after our ass with this <laughs> with this Krenzel slander. I just want people to know I'm not saying these things about Craig Krenzel. That's Patrick, and he's at Patrick underscore Mayhorn on Twitter. I'm excited for the 2006 episodes when we. Uh, he was 2006, right? With the 2006 episodes when we spend oh, 50 God. minutes shitting on yeah, Kirk he was Martin. on that. <laughs> <laughs> That's rivals poster Kirk Barton. Do you think? <laughs> yeah, I like Craig Krenzel was bad. I think he was bad in this game too. And that's really not what you're going to go back and watch these for. At least in like, you're like a crazy person who likes to see bad quarterback play, which I don't know. Some of you might be, but the the thing really here is is Maurice Claret. It is the defense. I, I think that um, that defense somehow kind of goes underappreciated at times because they were just spectacular and I don't know if they are quite remembered as such and that that 2002 team is both fairly at times and unfairly uh, considered like one of the luckiest champions ever and I think that that is true in in some cases especially the national championship game I think that they they got pretty lucky with uh, the fact that their offense just did not work in that game and they still managed to win Uh, we'll talk about that a couple episodes from now but I, I think that you know the defense really showed up here uh I, probably their best game of the season save for maybe the minnesota game a couple weeks prior uh because they were just unbeatable i mean michigan had a pretty good offense this year it certainly wasn't great um john navarre was he was fine he was <laughs> he wasn't great or anything chris perry was fine he wasn't great but uh, they were just completely shut down by this defense. They had two turnovers, including the the interception late that sealed it. And I, I think if you want to see a a really truly dominant defense, this is a, a good one to watch because they were just mean. That that front seven was just mean and and hard to run on, hard to pass on. Um, I, I think if you miss defenses like this game is is maybe worth rewatching, especially if you like want to uh, to cleanse your palate after maybe going and watching like a game from the twenty eighteen season. A lot of fans season. get really defensive when people call that team lucky, but I think that's what makes them so special because they they were they they were one of the best teams in the country. I, yeah. I don't think there's really any doubting that, but. You know, they got lucky against Purdue. They got lucky against Wisconsin. They got lucky the week before against Illinois. And should they have won the national championship? Absolutely not. But that's why they're so special. And that just goes to show you how hard it is because 
we're going to talk a lot on this list about teams that I think were a notch above this one and didn't win a national championship. But we'll always look back at 2002 just in a different way because they were able to somehow, whether it was luck, good bounces, skill, whatever you want to call it, they were able to go 14-0. and And that's you just don't have seasons like that, especially with the amount of games they played like this that were just tight every single week. And that, that's what makes this so fun to look back at that group for. And one of, one of the things that I thought was interesting before the broadcast when they were running out onto the field, uh, they were already 12-0 and in this game. And I went and did some research on that because that seemed a little odd to me that I was like, well, you know, now it makes sense because they play 12 regular season games plus conference championship plus playoffs. But back then there was the Pigskin Classic and they played that game against Texas Tech to start the season. And it may have just been for that year. It may have been a, a couple years previous to that. But the NCAA used to let teams play in those Pigskin Classic games and it wouldn't. It would count on the record, but it would let them play an extra game. And I think this was the last season teams were able to do that. So not only did they go undefeated, but they played an extra game and then were able to beat Miami in the national championship. So I think when you look at the totality of everything, not only about this game, but about this season, it puts into perspective just how unlikely and how special it was. I uh, I mentioned earlier how much college football has changed from 1995 to, to 2019. Um, and I think it's changed quite a bit from 2002 to 2019 as well. And um, I don't remember for sure if we mentioned this on last week's podcast. Uh, it is wild the, to to think of like a team now going 14-0, and going undefeated, winning the national championship without a quarterback. Um, and that just yeah. happened all the time back then. <laughs> Like, there were plenty of teams in the 90s that did not have a quick. I mean, Nebraska didn't pass the ball, and they won, like, five championships. <laughs> they had no interest in passing the ball, and it didn't matter. Um, and even, like, getting into the, the late 2000s, you see, like, some of those early Alabama teams that won championships, the, the one that stands out to me. There was, like, the... Um, the the year with uh like AJ McCarron was kind of their first decent quarterback but before that it was like Greg McElroy and he sucked he wasn't any good and that was kind of part of the whole deal was that up until I mean really Jalen Hurts and then Tua Alabama just didn't have a quarterback and it, it's wild thinking about that now that in 2002, the team that won the championship, both teams that were in the championship game just didn't have a good quarterback. Ken Dorsey was a bad quarterback, and and Craig Krenzel was a bad quarterback. And there was there's a really like unique uh, you know thing looking back at these teams and uh, seeing how much they relied on the defense, how much they relied on the running game because it's completely different now. It's like. Uh, you know, a team that does this now is Michigan, and they go ten and two. You know, they they don't win they don't win every game because they can't pass the ball, and you have to pass the ball in modern college football. And these teams just didn't. Ohio State just could not and and refused to even try to pass the football. 
and it didn't matter. They still won every game, and it, it's it's like like how we were talking last week about the uh, the game against Arkansas being really bizarre. It's bizarre to watch any game from the 2002 season because every single coach, every single player knows that Ohio State is not going to beat them in the passing game. And they still won. They still scored enough points to win. They would just shut you down with their defense. And <clears throat> I think that it's not necessarily the the best for rewatching, but it is really interesting. It's really interesting to to see just how different everything used to be. You know, even not that long ago in college football, Alabama did win a title with Jake Coker the other year too. He's Legend. he's probably the last the last one. <laughs> Alabama legend slash Florida State legend Jacob Coker. One other thing that I maybe the biggest thing I loved about this game is just the atmosphere and the frenzy that Ohio Stadium's in the whole game. And like, how, how old were you uh, for this game? I was three. Because I, <laughs> yeah, I, I was twelve. I was three. And I was <laughs> I, I was just getting to the point where I could appreciate what I was watching. But in, in watching this. Something that I that I thought and was so so obvious now, but I had never thought of is imagine that you had lived through the Cooper era, and now you're at this point. Ohio State is twelve and zero. If they win this game, they're going to the national championship. They're playing a Michigan team who is ranked ninth. They're nine and two, and this is it. You've lived through the Cooper era. You've seen what we talked about, them failing on these big moments and not able to beat Michigan. And sure, they had beat them the year before, but everything was on the line. How tight, and please, people, if you were old enough, if you were like in your 20s or 30s during this game, send us your thoughts about how you felt going into this game because I could not imagine that your ass wasn't extremely tight for the duration of this game. Because there was so much pressure, and you can almost feel that watching the game, that everybody's so amped up, and every play is just so massive. And when you look back, it it makes sense because people had gotten their hearts broken year after year after year. So finally, when Allen makes that interception, you know, it's all embodied by Musburger when he's just like, let's party, Columbus. And everybody storms the field. I, I think that it's it's almost an underrated part of Jim Tressel's uh, whole, you know, like his whole thing was that he made it so that that pressure from the fan base just in general from what was at that point 30 plus years of a title drought and coming off of a decade of just being completely on a Michigan to keep that pressure from completely consuming this team the further they got into the season. Um, I mean, I, I think a lesser a lesser team, a, a team with less fortitude, just completely shows up flat to to this specific game because of how important it was to the fan base, because of the energy around Columbus. Because I mean, I obviously I wasn't um, like old enough to to remember it or to be around at the time, but you can feel it, like you said, you can feel it watching this game, and I imagine it was like that for weeks heading into this one, where you know, everyone was just looking forward to, you know, in terror, <laughs> the fact that the Michigan game is coming up. And if Ohio State wants to actually do this thing, they have to beat Michigan. And that's, that's you know, that, that's the thing that Ohio State and Michigan always have to do. If they're great, they they know at the end of the year they're going to have to beat each other. And 
uh, this was kind of the ultimate version of that because they had so many years of losing to Michigan. They had so many years of coming up just short with these awesome teams. And I do think that outside of watching the defense, outside of watching Maurice Claret, if you want to watch this game and then just skip to the last couple minutes, it's a really, really standing energy. It's a really, like... I think unique to this game energy where it's not, it's not so much excitement when they rush the field as it is just relief. It's like the entire stadium just let out like a massive, you know, like they had been holding their breath all game long and they could finally breathe. And they, they knew that like, even if Ohio state loses in the national championship, they finally got there again. They finally beat Michigan and that, that, you know, storming the field and you see uh, like Maurice Claret running around like a crazy person when people are storming the field and jumping up and down. And I, I just, I can't imagine how much relief the players and the fans and the coaches must have felt and like just how cathartic this whole game was. And it, it's certainly not, it's not a good game. <laughs> it's not a, a, a technically good football game. It's, you know, the offenses were not good. The, it was mostly defense. It was punting. It was a lot of field position. But it, it's a very, very important game. It's a very, I think, you know, significant, I guess, is, is a good way to describe it. I can't really think of a, a better way to say it. It's just it's a very cathartic game in Ohio State history. And I think it's a game that is worth going back and looking at just to remember the feeling that people had um, and to remember that like Ohio State didn't used to always beat Michigan all the time. That used to be, you know, the way that it was. Like sixty-two thirty-nine did not used to be kind of the norm. And um, I, I think it's not necessarily fun, but I think it's necessary to go back and and look at how big of a deal this was at the time. Yeah, and just how, like you said, cathartic and how on edge everyone was because, for all intents and purposes, this shouldn't have been. A, a thing to be worried about at the end of the game because Ohio State gets the ball back. <laughs> very, very with Jim two <laughs> minutes left, and they still had to pick off a pass at the goal line to win the game. Like very, it was very Jim Trestle in, in a very fitting way for after how everything happened with John Cooper for the game to end. Because just watching it back, Michigan has a fourth down from their own twenty yard line with forty two seconds left. And they get to throw the ball in the end zone from like 20 yards out on the last play of the game. And if you go back and watch the second to last play where John Navarre throws it out of the out of the back of the end zone, I don't know how in the world, especially in Ohio Stadium, they left one second left on that clock. That's That never happens. They always run out the clock there with one exception, and that's the 2009 Big 12 championship game Nebraska uh, between was Texas robbed. and Nebraska. <laughs> Nebraska got, and hey, as a foremost Nebraska hater, I can Dominican say Sue they Anderson. were robbed in that one. <laughs> that, those are the only two times I've seen that happen, but it, it just, they it was the most trestle and the most the fitting the most fitting way that it could have ended was to come down to that final play where even watching it back now almost 20 years later when he zips that pass over the middle you think like oh man he might catch that and then Will Allen comes in and picks it off yeah it it's definitely i, I think 
you know, like I said, if you just want to watch the end of this game, I would understand. <laughs> I, I think that might be the best way to consume it. But I, I do think that ending is worth watching. And maybe if you can find some highlights of this game, you should go back and watch those because it's a very uniquely Ohio State experience. Um, and I, I think it kind of bring it certainly brings me back to a time where, um, you know, winning winning 12 games a year was not necessarily the norm at Ohio State. Um, and it, it's interesting for, for that on its own and for uh, Maurice Claret, for the defense, for watching a Jim Dressel offense, which uh, has its ups and its downs. But I, I do think that it, it deserves a place on its list on this list because of its, its significance. If Ohio State lost this game, uh, Washington State was third. Um, Jason Gesser versus that Miami defense. I don't know if it would have worked out well for them because they got wrecked in the Rose Bowl against Oklahoma. But the only other thing that I have written down here is that I can't be convinced that John Navarre, Chris Ricks, and Chris Winky weren't all created from the same the same original clone. The same guy, yeah. And then just <laughs> dropped in. They, those tall quarterbacks in the 90s, man, they all are just the same exact guy. And a lot of those Michigan quarterbacks in that era. But like you said, the, the best part about this game is when it really comes down to the fourth quarter and you feel what's on the line and what's at stake and what Ohio State has to do to finally get over this hurdle and get to the national championship and you know in my personal list I wouldn't have this in the top 20 but I think it has a rightful place because of like what we just said the stakes beating Michigan in that situation finally really appreciating what Maurice Claret meant to that team and how big of a presence he was even when it looked like he was at about 40 or 50 percent and just how special and lucky and unique in a very good way the 2002 team yeah was. for sure I, I think that's a uh, a good way to sum it up if you have uh, if you have anything else go ahead I, I think that uh, my last thing on this is that uh, John Navarre is Daniel Jones's dad and you can't convince me otherwise <laughs> that's that's perfect i i like that um i i don't even know if i want to say mine that that or yours that didn't make the list that i would have over this one but uh 2005 michigan Mm -hmm. game innocent extremely extremely innocent also any of the notre dame games from the 90s Mm. and 2005 i'll take it into consideration (laughs) but that's that's where we are we are through four games on our list we hope you guys enjoyed this show and please go back and listen to 20 and 19 but i feel like we're on a little bit of a roll right now it wasn't planned like i said but both of these games that have been potted up so far i think have been symmetrical in ways i don't think that that's going to continue as we move through this list but i i think we're four for four in terms of games that you should go back and, and rewatch, and, and certainly the importance of of all of them and all of these are really fun to go back and check out and just see how Ohio State football has evolved in the last 20 or so years and in different points of, of where these games were at. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm looking at the ones that we have coming up for the next episode. Very different games. I won't spoil what they are. Um, wildly, wildly different. We have our first blowout coming up on the next episode, which should be fun. Uh, we have a couple of those on here that I think will be uh, enjoyable to talk about. This one is especially delightful to me. Um, two very different games. I think two games that 
next week. I don't I don't think we've really talked about games in the stylings of either of these two yet. So I'm excited for that. No, both of these games are are sweet. I'm I'm really excited to talk about both of these for different reasons and I think that everybody else is going to be excited about it too. Uh, go on to Land Grant and Holy Land, find the pod post that goes with this episode and read some of our thoughts about these games. We, we're a little more succinct and, and wrapping up kind of what we think about, and that's going to be the main hub online for this series. And like we said at the start of the show, follow along at Apple Podcasts. We're on Stitcher. If you go on to Spotify, search Land Grant and Holy Land, find this episode, every other episode of the show there. Those are the best places to keep up. And if you have any questions, send them our way at Holy Land Pod. And also give us some feedback on this series. Patrick and I think it's the best thing we've ever done, but you know, we're so self-absorbed anyway that that's just the norm. That of course that was gonna happen. So please give us some feedback on what you guys think about this and what your suggestions are, what what you think about our list so far. But we've still got a long way to go and coming up on next episode we have what is it, sixteen and fifteen? Uh, yep. Sixteen and fifteen. Sixteen and fifteen coming up next episode. It's going to be a lot of fun, so please make sure to stick right here on the Hangout in the Holy Land podcast. For Patrick Mayhorn, I'm Colton Denning. We'll catch you guys next time.